Welcome everyone to the learning which we're doing together as part of Communities in Conversation, where communities around the world are joining together, each in their own place, to learn Torah in memory of Rabbi Sachs Zatzel on his second yard site. The topic that we've spoken to, to discuss today is covenant. We wanted to pick a topic which Rabbi Sachs speaks out a lot throughout a lot of his different writings. And Rabbi Sachs speaks about covenant all the time. His famous essays on the parasha called Covenant and Conversation. He talks about covenant in so many of his books. What is a covenant? A Brit. Rabbi Sachs, when asked to define what he thought were the seven ethical features, unique features of the Torah, one of them he gave was the Torah believes in covenant. What is covenant? What is a Brit? Now the truth is it's not just Rabbi Sachs who talks about a covenant or a Brit all the time. The Torah itself is full of Britot. We have, in last week's parasha, we have a Brit that Avraham makes with Hashem, which becomes the Brit Milah. We have in Parshas Noach, we also have HaKadosh Baruch who makes a bris with Noach and his descendants when they come out of the Teva. We have at Matan Torah, a bris that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, some kind of covenant, some kind of agreement that HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes with Am Yisrael at Har Sinai. In Sefer Devarim, when the Jews are about to enter into Eretz Yisrael, we have at least one Brit. Could be there's a lot more there. It's complicated to see within the Pesukim. But there's definitely a Brit there, a covenant there made between Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, what is, um, what, is a, what is a covenant? Rabbi Sachs, when he spoke about covenants, he spoke about covenantial society. You have a covenant which governs or serves as the glue which holds society together. So before we discuss and explain what a covenant is and why it's so central in the thought of Rabbi Sachs, we're going to speak for a moment about society. Now the whole of Torah is about society. Perhaps all five books are about society, perhaps more than any others. The two books, the two Sfarim at the beginning and at the end of the Torah, Sefer Bereshis and Sefer Devarim, speak about society more than all the others. In Bereshis, you have all the bad societies, in short. You have corrupt societies. You see all the problems which can come when you have different societies or immoral societies not acting as they should. In Sefer Devarim, we have a description of the idyllic society, the society that the Jews are supposed to build when they come into Eretz Yisrael. In between, well, we'll get back to what happens in between. Now, Devarim, Rabbi Sachs, used to look at very often as being the most important, if it's possible to cite one, the most important Sefer in the Torah. At least the one which has the greatest concentration of Jewish values and Jewish ideas. And he described Devarim as being the renewal of the Sinai Covenant. Devarim is a book which describes, more than any other, the ideal covenant that we're supposed to join with HaKadosh Baruch Now, a covenant, like I said before, is supposed to be there to structure society. Now, the obvious question which we can ask is, how does one build a society? Now, the easiest way is probably through power. Especially when we're asking the question from a religious perspective, we're asking the question from a Jewish perspective. You have power already given. In Judaism, the truth is in any religion, people believe in some kind of divine power. And it could be that you could structure society simply through power. Now, Rabbi Sachs was very keen to point out that that is not the case when it comes to the Torah. In fact, he contrasted between Judaism and Islam. Islam means submission. There is no real word 
in the Torah, definitely in the Chumash, for submission. The closest thing we have to it, perhaps, is the word Shema, which doesn't mean to submit, to kind of give up your own individual thought process and your own opinions. It merely means listen. I'm going to read you a, a few of Rabbi Sachs's works in his introduction to covenant and community, covenant and conversation on Sefer Devarim. Strikingly, in a religion that contains 613 commandments, there is no Hebrew word that means obedience. The closest equivalent, Shema, means not obedience, but rather hearing, listening, striving to understand, internalizing and responding in need. The very tone and texture of Deuteronomy, the Varim, is directed not at blind obedience, but at the contrary. It is a sustained attempt to help people understand why it is that God wants them to behave in the way that he does. Not for his sake, but for theirs. It's, it's very notable, if you look at the Torah as a whole, one of the central tenets, perhaps even the central tenet of Judaism, is learning Torah. We're not just told to follow commands, to submit to them. We're actually given one of the main, main commands is actually talk about them, try to understand them, develop them, try to work out what they're about. It's notable then, Sefer Devarim, which is the covenant Sefer, the book which talks about society more than any others, you actually find, Rabbi Sachs doesn't say this, I'm just putting this in there as an interesting feature, more tamea mitzvot, more reasons for the mitzvahs given than in any other sefer. There's so many mitzvahs in Devarim which come back, which have already appeared in other places in the Torah, which when they return in Devarim, a reason is kind of given, an explanation is given next to them. Now, let, let's pause for a moment and ask a bigger question. Why do we need a society? Why can't we just be a group of individuals, each doing our own thing, listening to the Torah, being good, being moral in our own way? So to answer this question, Rabbi Sachs, in his introduction to Sefer Dvarim and Covenant and Conversation, quotes the Rambam. The Rambam Muranavuchim says that the mitzvahs in the Torah, the purpose of the mitzvahs in the Torah, are divided into two sections. There are those which are there for the perfection of the soul, and those which are there for the perfection of the body. The Rambam says that one cannot succeed, one cannot excel spiritually in a ruchani way, if they don't have the right conditions which are there for the perfection of the body. What does the perfection of the body mean? It means we have physically healthy bodies. We live in secure societies. Human beings can't live in a vacuum. A person can't excel spiritually if he's either starving, ill, living in a war-torn place, living in a poverty-stricken place. We need all the right um, conditions within a society to allow a person to thrive spiritually. Now, whether or not that's a, a good reflection of all of what society is about, whether it really is that kind of narrow um, idea of providing the right environment for the individual to thrive spiritually, um, in Rabbi Sachs' thought in general is a, is a good question. We're not going to go into it for now. It's a fascinating topic. But, there are, but Rabbi Sachs nonetheless does quote that Rambam as being the springboard for why he explains we need a society. And then what he goes on to do is he actually looks through Sefer Breshit and he says that pretty much when you have, and Sefer Breshit is a, is a Sefer full of great individuals, real great individuals of great moral and spiritual stature, whenever they interacted within a society, and all the societies then were pretty bad, it always caused problems. Take, for example, Avram. Avram gets to Mitzrayim, they try to steal his wife. He gets to Gerar, uh, it's Pelishtim, they try to steal his wife. The same thing happens with Yitzchak. Pasha's told us, he gets to 
Pelishtim, they don't steal his wife, but they're keeping an eye out. Because they remember Amitavram, but they would potentially have done so if he hadn't uh, claimed that she was his sister. You get Dina, for example. Yaakov comes back from Golis, he comes back into Eretz Yisrael, he pitches his tent, or he builds a house for the first time outside of society, outside Shechem. Dina is raped. Yosef goes to Mitzrayim. The exact society which um, which uh, the Torah very often seeks to rebel against. And he has problems with Aishas Potiphar, he has all different problems in Mitzrayim. Individuals cannot thrive spiritually in the fullest sense if they are not put in the correct society. Now, what is a society? Now, the truth is that if we're going to define it in its thinnest way, a society is just the, the area where different individuals can interact together successfully. In a, in a way, society is actually a trade-off between two crucial aspects of human life. Freedom. We want a society where each person is free. But then also order. There has to be a structure to society. There has to be rules. Without order, human life isn't possible. Without freedom, human life isn't special. In fact, we can widen this conversation and bring in a guest who will show us and explain to us exactly why freedom is so important. So it is only after reading the rest of Tanakh and coming back to this pasuk that we understand, I will make God a a man after my, uh, in my image after my likeness, means I will bestow on human beings the greatest gift I can bestow on them, the gift of free will. We can choose what we will become. And I don't want to waste too much time here on how revolutionary that idea is, but it is an idea that is challenged in every single generation. Rabbi Sachs frequently points out in so many of his works, perhaps the best example is not in God's name, but also in many places in covenant conversation, that the Torah begins with two stories which show us what happens when Absolute emphasis is put on only one of those two ideas, either complete freedom or complete order. Shortly after the creation of the world, we get to Noah, the generation of Noah. The world has been around for a good amount of years and people are free. But what do we have? Complete corruption. The Torah says, The world was full of corruption. Or if we just go back a few more psukim in a pasuk which emphasizes this point even better. When there were a lot of human beings ready. They were powerful people. They saw women. They saw the girls of man. They took whatever they wanted. Bechira unfettered and unchecked, leads to a corrupt society. The world destroyed itself, even before God destroyed it in the flood. Then, shortly after the Mabul, shortly after the flood, we have another story. A story which shows us not what happens when there's complete freedom, but when there's the opposite, when there's complete order. We all know the story, Dara Flaga, the Tower of Babel. It says in the Psukim, Vahikal Aret Machadim. All the world had one language and one dvar machadim. They spoke about one matter. They had one goal. 
One thing which brought them together. They traveled together. They begin to build something. They produce bricks and they begin to build some kind of building. Now, there's many Midrashim were explaining what was their goal. They were building this big tower. It was somehow seen as a rebellion against God. What's the punishment? The punishment is interesting. If you read the Psukim in the plain sense, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime much. The punishment is they all get scattered around the world and they're all given different languages. Um, what's the, what the Psukim? God called that name Bavel because he Balal, he mixed up all the languages and he spread them out across the world. What happened? What we have in Dora Flaga is we have complete order. There is zero diversity. Everyone is speaking the same language and everyone has one goal. Now, when we think about it, if we go a few psukim just before Dora Flaga, we see that the narrative is actually slightly different from what we think. It's not that all the people were gathered in one place and then God scattered them afterwards. In fact, all the people were scattered had already moved out to the different continents, to the different countries of the world. And there was some great ingathering of all of them. There was some, there was some mission to end the diversity which had occurred when everyone, everyone had gone in their own places. What's the Pasuk before the story of Daraflaga? These are the different families and they each went in their own directions. If we look at a Pasuk a bit earlier, Everyone already had their own languages in their own countries. They were different cultural identities already. And what happened was, some king, some power gathered them all together and gave them all one job, one mission. There was complete order. There was no deviation from the standard. Now the Medrash even goes into great detail and it talks about how the fact they were so driven to build this tower that if a brick would fall off the, would fall off the building, they would complain about it, they would mourn. If a human being happened to fall off the side of the mountain and we, uh, side, sign of the tower, and this kind of very much, uh, very much is in line with various other totalitarian, um, governments which have uh, occurred over the world. If a human being dies in the construction of a big project, doesn't really matter. When a brick would fall, they would cry. When a human being would fall, they wouldn't cry. Why is that? What's going on in that story? That story was an attempt to put complete order over all of mankind. There was no longer any individuality. There was no longer any diversity. When there's complete order and no freedom, a human being isn't special anymore. A human being falls, a brick falls. It doesn't really make any difference. You can build buildings with bricks. You can build buildings with human beings. There is no difference between a human being and a brick in a world where there's complete order. That, by the way, explains the punishment, which Rabbi Sachs is clean to emphasize. God returned diversity to the world. He sent them in all different directions. They all went to their own countries. They all spoke their own languages. But it's quite clear, both from the story of Noah and from the story of Dora Flaga, that complete order or complete freedom, both are not acceptable options. So the two extremes don't work. Absolute freedom doesn't work and absolute order doesn't work. So maybe softer versions of the two might work. And traditionally, this is how society has been built. There have been different ways of structuring collective units. You either appeal to common interest. If I have tomatoes and you have cucumbers, 
then it makes sense for the two of us to interact together, to do trade together. Otherwise, our salads will be pretty boring. Or, you don't appeal to common interest, you appeal to collective power. You have a big state, you have a big government. In other words, you have two options. The market or the state. There is someone who can explain this a lot better than me. To understand the difference between these two kinds of interactions, we need to make a distinction between two ideas that sound similar but are actually not, namely a contract and a covenant. In a contract, two or more individuals, each pursuing their own interest, come together to make an exchange for mutual benefit. So, for instance, when I buy something from you, you give me the item or the service I want, and in exchange, I pay you. That's a commercial contract, and that's what makes the market economy. Or, I pay taxes in return for the services provided by the government. That's the social contract, and it creates the state. But a covenant is different. The simplest example of a covenant is a marriage. Two people, each respecting the dignity and integrity of the other, come together in a bond of loyalty and trust to share their lives by pledging their faithfulness to one another to do together what neither can achieve alone. A contract is about interests, but a covenant is about identity. It's about you and me coming together to form an us. The difference is huge. The social contract creates a state, but the social covenant creates a society. A society is about all the things that bind us together as a collective group bound to the common good without transactions of wealth or power. In a society, we help our neighbors not because they pay us to or because the state forces us to, but simply because they're part of the collective us. When our form of government tends either towards the market or the state. Both involve us giving something to get something back in the market. I trade something with you so I can get some benefit for myself in return. When we focus on the state, I surrender some of my freedoms or some of my money or something of mine to the state in order to get benefits from the state in return. Now, in both models, whether or not a society is formed because of all these interactions happening through millions of people in the same country, is, by the by, it's a side product. The focal point is still me. I am surrendering or giving something to the market because it is in my own benefit, or I'm surrendering something to the state because it's in my own benefit. A covenantal society, the society which Rabbi Sachs describes, is not about what I get, but what about I give. It's about the responsibilities I have outwards to society, as opposed to the rights which I get from society. In the words of Rabbi Sachs, covenant is supremely an ethic of responsibility. The emphasis is always, what can I give, not what can I get? With contracts, you have contractual rights. With covenants, you have covenantal responsibilities. Now, let's take this back and look at Rabbi Sachs's thought in a broader lens. And let's quickly go, if we had to kind of describe Rabbi Sachs's structure of the entire Torah throughout covenant conversation in many different places. How does this connect to society? What Rabbi Sachs really sees is he sees an entire book, the entire Torah, 
being written about society. It starts with Boratius, which shows you all the bad societies and why you need the good society. And then slowly, book by book, through Shmos, Vahikra, Bamidba, and eventually to Devarim, we have different books which show us how we're going to build an ideal society. And hand in hand with that, because this is really how one builds a society, you have more and more responsibilities being handed over, so to speak, from God to Am Yisrael. The first bris we have is Noah, which seems to be pretty passive. There isn't much contained in the bris. There are certain mitzvahs, certain moral laws which Noah is expected to keep, or things he's not supposed to do. And then, accordingly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will keep the world alive. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will bless mankind. With Avram, you have a bit more. Avram is supposed to walk in front of God. With Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and the bris of Har Sinai, of Matan Torah, you have the Jews being given a lot, lot, lot more responsibilities. But it's still a model of, in Rabbi Sachs's, to paraphrase Rabbi Sachs, of God being on top of the mountain and the people being underneath. It's still very, very top down. Towards the end of Shemos, the Jews start to build a Mishkan. What's the idea of the Mishkan? That God won't be anymore at the top of the mountain. They'll be able, this is an idea which appears in the Ramban also, to, so to speak, take God with them. The Mishkan would be able to allow them to move God into society, move God into the Machana, into the camp, and take him with them as they travel towards Eretz Yisrael. That's the end of Shemos. The truth is, that's also the whole of Sefer Vayikra. The whole of Sefer Vayikra is constructing a ethic of holiness, a, a, um, a atmosphere, a reality of Kedusha, which will allow the Shechina to come with Am Yisrael, will allow Kedush Baruch to come with Am Yisrael, first of all, in the, first of all, creating holiness, the first half of Sefer Vayikra, in the Mikdash, in the Mishkan, after that, creating it between man and man, and after that, describing how it will be maintained in Eretz Yisrael towards the end of Sefer Vayikra. Then Bamidbah comes around, and for the first time, the Jews are taking more responsibility. They're now literally shouldering the burden. They're carrying God, so to speak. They're carrying godly ideas with them through the Midbar, until eventually we get to Devarim, where really, Am Yisrael are given the authority. They're told to get on and do the job, to go into Eretz Yisrael and build this covenantal society, which the entire Torah is focused on. And note, the bris in, in Parshas Noach is God talking completely to Noach. The bris in Parshas Lechlecha is God completely speaking to Avram and telling Avram to do one action. The bris in Parshas Yisro, Parshas Mishpatim, Matan Torah, is an interaction. God initiates the bris, but Moshe Rabbeinu takes part. The bris in Sefer Dvarim, when the Jews are about to go into Eretz Israel, is completely initiated by Moshe. Moshe is the one who cuts the covenant. He cuts the bris. He's cursed the bris between Ami Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, and you can see this idea that covenant, covenantal society involves responsibilities and looking outward what you can do with other people when one actually, one actually looks at the mitzvahs in Sefer Dvarim. There's so many mitzvahs in Sefer Dvarim which come back, which were repeated in the Torah, but different reasons are given for them. What's the prime example? Shabbos. Why do we keep Shabbos? It says in Parshish Yisra that you should remember, God created the world in eight days, in seven days. Six days even. God created the world in six days. Why are we told to keep Shabbos in Sefer Dvarim? Because you should give a rest to your slaves and your maidservants. You should remember that you were a slave in Egypt. The Moadim are described throughout the Torah in Parshish Kisisa. In Parshas Emor, in many places, 
Ba'oni and Devarim, are we given the mitzvah of a samachta with Hagea, Hayasam, Va'amona, caring for other people. In fact, Rabbi Sachs points out loads of times in his shirim on Kaheles, in his shirim on Sefer Devarim, that the word Simcha appears in Devarim 12 times. I think it appears in the rest of the Torah just three more times. In every place where the word Simcha appears in the Torah, it's always in the context of being happy with others. Devarim directs us towards other people because that's how one builds a society and not just a state. That's how one makes a covenant. One forms something bigger than oneself and not just a contract. So if we don't have the power of the state or self-interest, how do we make people keep the law? Rabbi Sachs had a very interesting thought on that. However, I want to take you into a deeper reason. The Israelites were nearing the land and there they were challenged to build a society unlike any other that existed in the ancient world, unlike really any other ever. It was going to be a free society based on a covenant between the people and God. So the rule of law was going to be secured, not by the use of force or any other way, but by people honoring their commitments. They're given their word to God at Sinai, all the things you've commanded us, we will do and we will hear, and so on and so forth. That is the meaning of a covenant society. A covenant society is a place where words, especially the words in which you make promises, are holy, are sacrosanct. And that is what I call Judaism, a religion of holy words. And those words are at the basis of the Jewish understanding of a free society. Now, listen, I need to explain this a little bit, because how do we get people to obey laws? How do we get people to act the way we would like them to act? There are two ways. Number one, you can use power. You can punish them if they don't. Number two, you can speak to self-interest. You can appeal to their advantage. Okay? Two ways of getting people to do what you want. But if you're going to base a whole society on either of those things, you're in trouble. Because if, in order to get people to act the way you want, you have to use power, then you're asking people to give up freedom. If you have to bribe them to do what you want, they're only interested in money, then at the end of the day, you're going to suffer a loss of social cohesion because some people are going to get very rich and some people are not. And if the only thing they care about is money, that society is not going to hang together very well. And therefore, Judaism says, let's think of a third way. Can we do it another way? And the answer is moral obligation. Here is a people that committed itself by a verbal undertaking at Mount Sinai. And if that verbal undertaking is holy, then people will keep the law, not because they'll be punished if they don't or they'll be rewarded if they do, but because they understand the binding power of a promise. People keep society together because they hold themselves accountable to something bigger than themselves. They have a commitment to keep their word. Now, all of this is wonderful, but in the contemporary world, we're in trouble. Because the idea of having commitments to something bigger, abstract, bigger than oneself, is not so much in vogue. Society still believes that one shouldn't do things which directly 
damage or impact negatively on other people. But the idea that one has to keep to certain commitments for some, due to some commitment to some greater idea, is being challenged. Don't take it from me, take it from Rabbi Sachs. The covenantal basis of society is very, very hard to sustain. In a book I wrote, wrote called The Home We Build Together, I argued that the concept of society as a home we build together has been displaced by the concept of society as a hotel, where we each have our particular room, we can do whatever we like so long as we don't get the horses or wake the neighbors. We pay a certain amount to the government, we get in return our room for all the services. But the concept that we are bound with bonds and moral morality to other members of society is one that is more and more free, and which is part of the creation, the creative destruction of a market economy when it loses its moral base. But we stand to lose so much. If we only ask ourselves, what can I take from society? Everyone will take and there'll be nothing left. If we ask ourselves, what can we give to society? Everyone will do their bit. Society will be full. and There'll be enough for all of us together. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, Rabbi Sachs, in a way better than I could ever say, at the end of his final book, which he published before he passed away, ends on a positive note of how we can fix this momentary blip in society. Rabbi Sachs says, in the closing paragraphs of morality, my firm belief is that the concept of covenant has the power to transform the world. It sees relationships in terms not of interests, but of moral commitments. It changes everything it touches, from marriage to friendship to politics and economics and politics, by turning self-interested individuals into a community in pursuit of the common good. There is nothing inevitable about the division, fragmentation, extremism, isolation, the economics of inequality or the politics of anger that have been the mood in Britain and America in recent years. They have been the legacy of a misplaced belief that society can function without a moral bond. They cannot, or at least not for very long. This is why we are where we are. But we can change. Societies have moved from I to we in the past. They did so in the 19th century. They did so in the, 10th, in the 20th century. They can do so in the future. And it begins with us. Just to conclude, one final idea from the Torah of Rabbi Sachs is a fascinating idea he didn't really create, but pointed out towards the end of Sefer Dvarim, where we get one interesting mitzvah, which seems to be different from its like when you compare it to other similar mitzvahs. The mitzvah of Maaseshenyi requires people to take 10% of their produce to Yerushalayim every year and to eat it there. It's not like Maaseshenyi, which you give to the Levi. The Levi didn't have any land. They probably were a bit poor. They needed people to pay them Maaseshenyi. It's not like Maaseshenyi, whose purpose seems apparent. Maaseshenyi is taken to Yerushalayim. Why? Rabbi Sachs loves the approach of the Rambam and Murun The Rambam Murun points out that a person brings 10% of his produce of the entire year to Yerushalayim, he obviously won't be able to consume it in the small amount of time which he spends in Yerushalayim. He's probably just in Yerushalayim for the regal, for Pesach, for Shavuos, for Sukkot. How's he going to finish it all? You know what he's going to do, says the Rambam? He's going to invite a lot of people to eat with him. 
He'll have a big feast. He'll have a big party. He'll invite people. He'll interact with people. He'll socialize with people. And the Rambam says, he'll build the necessary bonds of friendship and fellowship through which society is built. That is the mitzvah of Ma'as Hashemi. That is the overall theme of Sefer Dvarim in Rabbi Sachs' thought. And that really is one of the constant central themes of the entire Torah, according to Rabbi Sachs. If I'm going to quote Chazal, when they come to talking about bio maisrus, the mitzvah one checks that one has no maisrus left, Chazal say on the Pasuk, Asisi I did everything you commanded me to do. How do we do everything that God commands us? Simachti v'simachti I was happy with my maestros, but I also made sure other people were happy with me as well. 